Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 573 for the 24th of December, 2017. This week, the number of security threats and the methods that crooks use have both increased in the past year. No sign of slowing. In short circuits, Google has released a new app that's designed to control which applications have access to an Android phone's data plan. While this isn't a new concept, the app has some promising features. If you miss the old-style control panel in the latest Windows update, there's an easy way to create a single-click access to it. In spare parts, only on the website, lots of companies sell your information, nothing new there. But what about companies that don't question requests from government agencies? The Electronic Frontier Foundation has a list. Password manager Dashlane has a list of the 10 worst password offenders for the year, and Donald Trump is at the head of the list. Dashlane will explain why. Is hibernation enabled on your computer? Should it be? Let's see how to turn it on if you want it, or turn it off if you don't. This year has seen an increase in numerous kinds of threats designed by people who want information that's on your computer, money that's in your bank, or both. The problem gets worse every year, so we'll see more threats in 2018. Now is a good time to take a look at some of them. When I answered the phone this week, a computer-generated voice said, This is an emergency. Some government agencies do use systems like that to warns of danger, so I continued listening. But I terminated the call after the next seven words. Those words were not, this is a call from a crook. Instead, those seven words were, the activation key for your Microsoft software. Well, if you've listened to the podcast or read TechBiter Worldwide for very long, you know that Microsoft doesn't place outbound calls like that. Now, that's not to say Microsoft doesn't ever call users. The company does call, but only if the user has first contacted Microsoft with a problem that needs further investigation. The technician will also have a case number that you should recognize. Unfortunately, though, Microsoft has blurred the line a bit between legitimate calls and scammers. When scammers call, they'll try to sign you up for a paid maintenance program. Microsoft technicians also do this, but they will stop pushing and help solve the problem once you tell them you're not interested. The crooks do something else that no Microsoft technician will ever do. Scammers will instruct you to open the Windows Event Viewer. The Event Viewer logs show informational messages, warnings, and errors. These can appear to be ominous when a crook has you look at them. There's a screenshot on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. It shows a flood of disturbing error messages, along with some warnings and a couple of informational messages. Now, the scammer will try to convince you that the computer has serious problems. Oh, my. Well, in general, it's a good idea to avoid the event viewer unless you know exactly what you're looking for. Many of the warnings and errors are trivial. 
The error message that I highlighted on the TechBiter Worldwide website is one of many duplicate messages, and it's not a serious problem. It's an ownership issue. What's happened is that the owner of the process has been changed to the user of the computer and not the administrator account. The messages are annoying, but the problem doesn't need to be fixed. There are ways to fix it, but it will return the next time there's a big Windows update, so most people just leave it alone. The event viewer is helpful when an application terminates abnormally or Windows crashes. In that case, it can be used to identify the component that's causing the problem. But just scrolling through the event viewer randomly does nothing but cause needless worries. The scammers have various approaches. Some use the phone, others send alarming email messages, but prevention is relatively easy. If you haven't contacted Microsoft with a request for assistance, they won't be contacting you. Neither will your internet service provider, and anybody who contacts you with a request to confirm account credentials can be presumed to be up to no good. Malware and ransomware are concerns, of course, but these days they are almost always the second part of an exploit. The primary part will probably be an email. Email has for a long time been the most common vector for attacks, messages that appear to be coming from a friend or a co-worker. We humans are almost always the weak link in any security system. After all, why should crooks use brute force methods that might attract unwanted attention when they can simply persuade people to give them the information they need? Mimecast's most recent email security risk assessment report reviewed more than 50 million email messages. More than 12 million were spam, and that number actually seems low. Some experts believe that some 80% or more of email traffic on the Internet is spam. The low number, about 25%, reported by the Email Security Risk Assessment, might be the result of upstream anti-spam functions that identify and delete spam when it's still in transit. Of the 12 million files that were spam, more than 9,000 contained harmful files, and more than 2,500 included malware. But nearly 19,000 were what are called impersonation attacks. 19,000 may seem like a small number, but the increase is concerning. Those kind of attacks have increased by 50% over last year. Many of the impersonation attacks target company employees and claim to come from, for example, the chief executive officer, the chief financial officer, or other C-suite managers. The messages may explain that the company has secretly agreed to acquire another company, and certain fees must be paid immediately and quietly. The crooks who send these kinds of messages spend the time needed to learn who the managers are and what the company's email messages look like. What I've just described are textbook spear phishing email messages, carefully crafted and targeted for specific individuals in a company. The right message from the right person to the right person. These kinds of messages can be highly effective, and the email security risk assessment says the average loss is just under $140,000. Impersonation attacks offer the crooks a huge advantage. Protective applications can stop messages that contain malware most of the time, but there's no clear indicator that would identify an impersonation attack. These kinds of attacks are usually aimed at businesses or government agencies, but similar kinds of attacks can be designed to target wealthy individuals. 
and dangers are spreading. It's not just email. Mobile banking apps can sometimes be dangerous. A researcher at the University of Birmingham in England identified five Android and iOS mobile banking applications that are vulnerable to man-in-the-middle attacks. These can be used to steal banking credentials. The full report is on the university website. There's a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. The apps are used by HSBC, Bank of America, Mizen Bank, and Smile Bank. The apps have tens of millions of users worldwide. Now, Bank of America says that it discovered and corrected the flaw in its application in January of 2016, and the app shouldn't even have been in use when the University of Birmingham tests were conducted this year. A man-in-the-middle attack, also known as a Janus attack, places the attacker between two people who believe they are communicating directly with each other. The man in the middle can simply read the communications or modify them. Wikipedia offers a very good example, and I've included it in this week's TechBiter Worldwide report. The researchers cite certificate pinning as part of the problem. A pinned certificate is accepted only if it is signed by a single certificate authority root certificate, and the technique is often used for transport layer security connections. The report says the flaw in pinning can obscure the lack of hostname verification and thus make man-in-the-middle attacks possible. An attacker who thoroughly understands the system can spoof the certificate, read the communications, and optionally change what either party sees. The researchers created a process they call Spinner. It attempts to run a man-in-the-middle attack. They tested 400 apps. 392 of them performed acceptably. The other eight did not. All eight of the apps with vulnerabilities have now been patched. But underlying vulnerabilities still exist. Spinner redirected traffic to websites that use similar certificates and then analyzed the encrypted traffic to determine whether the host name check was done correctly. It was able to obtain information without needing a single certificate. Well, that's yet another reason to update applications in a timely manner. And the next program, which will be the first program of 2018, podcast number 574 on the 7th of January, will feature some predictions by Sam Curry, Chief Security Officer at Cyber Reason, and he's calling 2018, hopefully, the year of defense. In short circuits, those who have cell phones that use a data plan, and that seems to be about 90% of us now, those folks might occasionally be shocked by how much data some of their apps use. Google has a new application that not only identifies which applications use the phone's data plan and how much the apps use, but also gives users a way to control the usage. I spend very little time at locations without Wi-Fi, so excess data plan usage usually isn't an issue for me. The Google Fi plan I signed up for about a year ago costs $20 a month for calls and texts, but otherwise without data. Well, I added one gigabyte of data per month for $10, but I rarely use that much, so the plan prorates the data fee and I rarely pay more than $25 a month. That compares to my previous plan that cost $50 a month and included only 500 megabytes of data. 
My usage is rarely more than 500 megabytes per month. In fact, it's usually considerably less than that. But those who spend more time away from Wi-Fi and want to save money on their data plan might find that Google's new app is quite helpful. The main problem for me right now is figuring out how to pronounce it. They spell it D-A-T-A-L-L-Y. I presume that name is supposed to be a portmanteau of data and ally. But D-A-T-A-L-L-Y just doesn't look very good, and it's unclear how Google wants people to pronounce it. Should it be Dat-Ally? Datally? 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 Well, whatever we call it, and I think I'll call it Datally from now on, we can't call it new because the concept has been around for quite a while. I've used other applications that monitor data usage, but Google's entry, Datally, or whatever it's called, is easy to set up and straightforward to use. For testing, I turned off my Wi-Fi connection after installing Datally. By default, the application blocks data plan usage by most applications other than those needed by the operating system. It's up to you to decide which applications you want to give data plan access to. The email application I use, Aquamail, was unable to log on to my mail servers when Datally was active, even though I had cleared it to use the data plan, at least until I rebooted the phone. After that, it was fine. This is probably an Aquamail issue because it also has trouble connecting via Wi-Fi when I have the VPN turned on. Datally shows how much of the data plan you've used on its main screen. After turning Wi-Fi off, I managed to use 28 megabytes of data one morning instead of my usual few hundred kilobytes a day. That initial screen is a good overall view, but the real power comes from the application's display that shows how much data individual apps use. During the setup process, Datally will request permission to send, receive, and read SMS messages, track your location, and access phone features that allow it to know the phone number and device ID, determine whether a call is active, and identify the remote number of any call. It will also set up a VPN, but only for mobile data, not Wi-Fi, and then it will use the VPN to block data plan access for apps that you haven't approved. While I had Wi-Fi turned off, I played a single game of solitaire on the phone, and I was surprised to see that this used 13 megabytes of data. Apparently, the files that are downloaded for each winnable game are a lot less compact than it seems they should be. Using the Manage Data tab in Datally allows the user to examine every application on the phone and explicitly allow or block access to the cellular data plan. Even if you have an unlimited plan, you may find that your provider throttles the plan to be unacceptably slow once your monthly usage exceeds a certain amount. So the plan will still be unlimited in name, but the connection will also be unusable because it's so slow. Datally can help in a case like this by refusing to allow non-essential applications to have access to the data plan. If you need to give a blocked app access to the data plan, it's easy to just turn Datally off for a few moments, use the normally blocked app, and then turn the Google app back on. You can also temporarily or permanently allow an app to have access to the data plan. Datally also includes a Wi-Fi finder that lists nearby locations that have Wi-Fi hotspots, 
and whether there's a login process or the hotspot is entirely open. Now keep in mind that there is no security difference between a web login and no password. The connections are not encrypted and using a Wi-Fi hotspot is dangerous unless you enable a VPN. If you want to take a look at Daedaly, or however they say it, you'll find it in the Google Play Store. Windows continues to have two control panels. There's the traditional desktop application and the one that started being included with the modern interface. The new control panel offers access to the old control panel because some of the settings still haven't been incorporated into the new control panel. Until the fall creators update, the old control panel is what you'd find on the WinX menu. Now you get the new one. Maybe you'd like to have easier access to the old control panel. If you still get to the old control panel by pressing the Windows key and then typing some or all of the word control and then clicking Control Panel Desktop App, you can just keep doing that. But if you press the Windows key and X to display the useful WinX menu, the control panel listed there is now the new one. Restoring the old control panel to the WinX menu is possible, but it's not easy. And it's a bad idea because Microsoft will eventually migrate all of the settings to the new control panel. Instead, if you really need to have quick and easy access to the old control panel, why not just pin it to the taskbar? Process is really easy. Search for the control panel by pressing the Windows key and typing Control. You'll see Control Panel Desktop App at the top of the list. Right-click the app and select Pin to Taskbar from the menu. Once the icon is on the taskbar, you can click and hold, then move it wherever you'd like it on the taskbar. Then, whenever you want the old-style control panel, just click the icon. That same technique, by the way, works for any other application that you'd like to place either on the Start menu or the taskbar so that you'll have quick access to it. You'll have quick access to spare parts. It's only on the website. This week, lots of companies sell your information. Nothing new there. But what about companies that don't question requests from government agencies? The Electronic Frontier Foundation has a list. Password manager Dashlane has a list of the 10 worst password offenders for the year. Donald Trump is at the top of the list, and Dashlane will explain why. Is hibernation enabled on your computer? Should it be? Well, let's take a look at how you can turn it on if you want it on or turn it off if you don't. And by the way, TechBiter will be hibernating for a week. This is the final program for 2017, so we'll be taking next week off, although you can expect a New Year's greeting. And then we'll be back on January 7th with new content, some new music, and more of the same 60 minutes worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.